Pastor Bruce, welcome everybody and online. Welcome to you as well. And I know as others come in on this Labor Day weekend, make sure you say hi and that they feel right at home. It's good to see you. We're here to worship the Lord, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be refreshed and encouraged and blessed and not only to enjoy the Lord's blessings, but also to enjoy one another's company. So with that, why don't we start with just a brief few moments of moving around a little bit and say hi to each other. Get to, get to know somebody new. And this is Amnesty Sunday. You can mention your name as if you've never heard it before or told it before, okay? Let's go say hi. Good morning, everybody. I have to get my teacher voice on. <laughs> All right, let's sing, eh? Sweet. 
God, you are our fortress, our shield. Lord, you are the one that knows it all. <laughs> and Father, we just want to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we want to do and, and serve, Lord, as you've created us to do. Lord, I thank you, Father, that we're doing just exactly that right now. You created us to worship you. You created us, created us for you. And Lord, we belong to you. We're so grateful for that. And we just can't thank you enough. Praise you, Lord.
Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. You're Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. You know the vastness of this great universe. And you also know, Lord God, each one of us by name. You know every little detail of our lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, where we're at spiritually, our walk with you. God, we thank you that through thick and thin, you remain the same, that your love endures forever, that you are our Savior, that through the cross of Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. That's a miraculous gift of grace. And we thank you for that forgiving wonder that we have in our hearts, that your love for us, Lord God, is something we can appreciate and understand and value and treasure forever. And that, Lord God, we're here to worship you and love you in return. We're thankful, Father, for the death and the resurrection of Christ, overcoming the grave, guaranteeing our eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the gift of faith that we can believe and worship you this morning. Lord, may your word, may your living presence, may your Holy Spirit touch all of our lives right now. Continue to do the great work in us, Lord God, to make us more like Christ day by day. Thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please be seated. I just want to read the Apostles' Creed together. Kind of a brief, concise compilation of several essential aspects of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Praise God. So many wonderful things in that, that creed. Uh, the kids up through fifth grade are free now to head down the hallway for Sunday school. And uh, Gabe and Rachel and Isabel came back from Ireland sick. Uh, they apparently tested positive for COVID as well. So they've got the Irish flavor, I guess. So um, they, I asked them if they needed anything. They said no, but uh, we'll see how it goes through the week. So keep them in your prayers. Also, Kent Skibby went to the hospital yesterday. Uh, doesn't need any visitors right now. He has a little blood infection, so pray for Kent. And also Mary uh, uh, Kidd, who was out on the prayer chain the other day. She's gotten home now, and she tells us she's doing much better. Just to kind of give you an update on, on things. So keep Keep all that in your prayers. So the kids are free to head now, and if you're middle school, high schoolers, stay here. And there and, will be youth group on Wednesday. And there will be youth group on Wednesday night. It'll either be uh, Gabe or the Fantastic Four. Um, we call ourselves maybe. Brian, you didn't know that, did you? And Marla just found out, too, via the Internet, maybe. So uh, if the two of you are still available Wednesday, stay tuned. We might need you. And uh, Amanda will be there as well, so we're grateful for that. Have a good time. A couple of quick announcements. Um, everything is postponed. Commission night and uh, session meetings are postponed one week because tomorrow's Labor Day. So push everything back a week. 
Also, the deacons are meeting during commission night uh, in, a, in a week after this Monday at 7 o'clock as well. And then also, if there's a tradition here, next Sunday, we're going to hand out our Bibles to our third graders or those that are eight years old. So let us know if your child is in that age by signing the list for us in the office right in there, and that'll help us out a lot. Otherwise, I think we probably know. But if we don't, be sure to tell us, and we'll be glad to help. For the rest of us, before we celebrate communion this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans 9, chapter 9, verse 30, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 4. And whom do I trust is the title on our outlines this morning. Whom do I trust? I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we come to your word. It's your holy word. It's your inspired word for us. Lord, you're messaging us through the written text, and your Holy Spirit is at work to touch each one of us singly with its value and worth and its application for us today. I pray, Father, that my words would be yours, that the message that I share today with everyone is the message that you would have delivered, and that, dear God, all of us, myself and everyone here and online, would know receive and believe this tremendous news of faith and to really seriously consider our walk with Christ. Faith or works, there's no in between. Thank you, Father, for this great word in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes, what then shall we say? He does that quite often, doesn't he, in the book. What can we say now? He's answering questions before anybody asks. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's a really succinct message, isn't it? Really to the point. The reason Paul is writing this is because the Gentile Christian community is now outnumbering the Jewish Christian community, and that puzzles the Jewish Christian community, thinking, hey, we're the chosen people. How come our people aren't excelling in this receiving and believing in the gospel? And why is it that God has turned to the Gentiles anyway? If you were a Jewish person at the time, you could literally say, I don't like those people. How come God does? There was this division in the house, and the Jews tend to circle the wagons, so to speak, and keep things in-house, and they didn't really care very much for those outside that circle. God did. And in fact, God chose them to be a salt and light in the world so that the rest of the world can receive and believe the good news that the Messiah is the means of our salvation. Clear through the Old Testament, clear through the New Testament, even in our lives today, obviously. So this is the root 
of what goes on there. Did you catch that there's one word that dominates these verses? It's mentioned eight times, which is telling us the point of these verses is that one word, the focus. That word is righteousness. He's talking about righteousness throughout the entire piece. So we've got to know what it means, don't we? If you look at a modern dictionary online or at home, you might discover that the dictionary tells you that righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. Morally right or justifiable. An example might be this. We had little doubt about the righteousness of our cause. I think lots of causes feel no doubt that they're in the righteous camp, right? Example of justifiable, the end justifies the means. Or that said, right? It's defined, the dictionary defines it not from God's point of view, but from a human point of view, societal point of view, that it's all based on feelings or opinions or social constructs or mores that give society its morality. And if that's the case, then it's always changing all the time. If society changes its mind about something that was illegal 50 years ago, then that becomes the new morality. But that doesn't mean that that's moral as God sees it. And the society and the people within the society can say, we're a righteous people. We're right with God. I feel like I'm a good person. My good things have done. I've lived a very good life, you might imagine. This is the morality that society itself can generate or families can promote. And an individual may come to their own conclusions. The biblical definition of righteousness, as you could probably guess, is God, not changing social constructs or opinions or political scenes, but God's constant nature. In fact, righteousness incorporates the entirety of God. Examples, his values, ethics, attitudes, behaviors, thoughts, words, all of those things combined to the nature of God are what righteousness is. So when Paul talks about righteousness, he's saying you need to be as good as God. That's what he's saying. And I don't think any of us would feel, if we know that definition, that there's any achieving that, but that's what the thought was in Paul's time and still is in so many circles today. So to be righteous is to be as right as God. The primary revelation of God's righteousness is Scripture, right? God wrote it all out for us. There's lots of examples in Scripture where God's name is not mentioned. People were launching onto their own endeavors and with their own morality and their own opinions and their own feelings, and disaster strikes. But God's grace still works through all of those individuals, bringing us to Christ, bringing us to faith. God understands. He moves nations. He's in charge. He knows what he's doing. God is God. The Mosaic Law, in particular, is running throughout this book of Romans. It's Exodus 19 to Exodus 24, those chapters. These are the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the ethical laws of God that God gave his people. And those laws now for us as believers in Christ are now passe, they're gone, except you might remember the Ten Commandments lie within them. And nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. There's only one that's not, and that's worship on the Sabbath, Saturday, because Christ rose on Sunday. And the Jewish Christian community 
immediately latched onto that and started worshiping very, very readily, not only on Saturdays, but Sundays as well, which would have been Monday for us, the first day of the work week, day one. So the Bible really gives us ethics that are eternal because God is eternal, and God's ethics don't change. Don't murder is still don't murder. Don't swear falsely under oath, it's still wrong. These are, you know, don't covet your neighbor's things, it's still wrong. It's nothing, none of that's changed. But we still fall short of the righteousness of God. But it's odd, isn't it, that the Gentiles have obtained righteousness, but the Jews who rejected Christ were still pursuing it. And as a chosen people, given the privilege of having the Old Testament, that would have driven a lot of people absolutely crazy. How could the Gentiles, without the Old Testament, without all that knowledge and education and cultural experience, they've been chosen by God, delivered out of Egypt, they're descendants of Abraham, how in the world could God declare a Gentile Christian to be righteous without all that stuff? This was the puzzle that they struggled with. Paul, Paul mentioned earlier in Romans the effect of the law, that stretch of Exodus and the Ten Commandments being included, that Mosaic covenant included in all of that. He wrote in Romans 5, the law was added, added by God, so that the trespass might increase. But where the sin increased, good news, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord that we can and have obtained righteousness. This is good news. Now, what does it mean that the law was added so that trespasses might increase? Well, it just simply made sin clearer. Everybody's a sinner, but now that's shown the spotlight on there, you can see it much more clearly. Uh, just the other day at our house, our, our neighbor's kids, the McGrew's kids, were over running around having a good time. And one of them noticed that she had a shadow in our room. And she was noticing how the shadow was her shadow, it wasn't my shadow, and it went wherever she went. And the brighter the light was, the more she could see the shadow. Because when she moved around in different places in the room, her shadow became kind of fuzzy. And you couldn't distinguish the features like you could if there was a bright lamp creating it. The law is like that. The shadow of sin is always there. But when the law sh shone the light much more clearly, the sin became that much more evident to them. And then interestingly enough, it didn't stop them from sinning. Because we have a sin nature in us that says, yeah, I know what God said, but still I want to do what I want to do. And that's called a trespass. You stepped over the line you knew. You saw the do not trespass sign and you went right over the wire. That's what trespasses are. And so God said, look, I gave you the law to tell you how holy and righteous I really am. And now you can see more clearly the trouble you're in. What was the point of the law? To create righteous people by doing it? Or by bringing sinful people to their knees, realizing, wow, that's righteousness. And I fall way short. Paul says it should put us all on our knees. And this is the rub. This is the problem that they're having. Either fulfill the entire law 
perfectly without a misstep or you'll fail. 10.5, Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. You'll be blessed by God if you do the law. James 1.10 puts it in real stark terms. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking all of it because you're no longer righteous. You're a sinner who needs to be saved, saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Scripture. Clear back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the Word. All right, so what's the first point? Righteousness by faith trips up pursuers of righteousness. Righteousness by faith trips up pursuers of righteousness. I love what he starts off with. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that's by faith. They didn't deserve it. They didn't work for it. They didn't merit it, but they got it. By faith. Faith in Jesus. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him, that is Jesus, will never be put to shame. The other... uh, month or so, it was probably about a year ago, a man brought his father-in-law up to Oregon City to go down the elevator and go down to Main Street and just look around, and he had Alzheimer's. So there, he was really needing his step, or son-in-law's time and attention. He had him on the arm. Well, the father-in-law was walking, or the step, stepdad, whatever, the father-in-law was walking towards the corner down there on the bluff, and you notice the new curbing they're putting in with the raised corner? There's a little elevated cement piece right on the corner where you can walk on either side of it to cross the street. Well, this is so new that the elderly gentleman didn't see it or didn't expect it to be there, and he falls flat on his face, skinning up his arm, bloodying his head, and uh, Jane and I both saw the whole thing go down, and we rushed over there and asked him if he was okay, and he ended up, it ended up ruining the trip. The, the son had to take him back to, to Gladstone and patch him up. Now, I understand why those new bumps in the curbing are there, because years ago I heard of somebody getting killed by a truck whose trailer cut the corner, and they were standing on the corner, and they got run over. And these bumps, I suppose, are to keep cars from cutting in too close. I I get that. By the way, you see black rubber marks on most of them now. But nevertheless, for a pedestrian who didn't expect it, he went head over tea kettles and just Boom, down on the ground he went. And I felt so bad for him. There's something like that in the Bible, and that's Jesus, who is right there for a very good reason, but they failed to see with the knowledge that they had who that was. And they stumbled over Jesus because they thought that the law, Moses, was a bigger deal than Jesus. Moses was 
their direction, their light, their source of, of spirituality and righteousness if they could just be perfect and obey the law. So they pursued righteousness. They wanted to be right with God, but they're going to do it by working for it. And in that sense, even though they'd read the Old Testament, they had the Old Testament, they'd studied it, they'd listened to it, they fell flat on their faces when it came to Jesus. They could not understand. There are lots of uh, paths in Israel. I think I've been there a couple times. I think Israel is the rockiest country I've ever been to. Rocks galore. If you ever wondered why they stone people, I can tell you why. They're readily available anywhere and everywhere you go. That land is a rocky, rocky place. And they know that with the crossed paths and the crisscrosses and the narrow passages, the, the walking that they did, tripping and falling over rocks in the trail was something they would all understand and appreciate. And so Paul says the majority of the Israeli people had tripped and fallen flat on their faces over the good news of Jesus Christ. To them it wasn't good news. They had been focusing in and been led and taught to believe with the morals that the culture generated, the traditions, the religiosity, the temple-centric ideas that they had, that if you just do these things, then you'll be right with God eventually creating an entire society of nervous spiritual people. Why was John the Baptist so popular? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. That got a nerve, a spiritual nerve, and the Holy Spirit moved. But still many, many, the majority in Paul's time and even in our day still had not believed. And it's the same problem. You know, you come along sharing the good news of Jesus Christ out in the world about us, sharing with family members and friends and co-workers and others that you may meet as the Holy Spirit provides and as the opportunities arise and the conversation becomes spiritual, hopefully, the world still trips over grace, still trips over faith. To have obtained God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and to have your sins forgiven without having to work for it is so sideways with what the world and all of its major religions teach, that we're saved by works, we're saved by achieving something, that we can go to God and face God and say, well, I've led a pretty good life. Let me in. That's what the, most of them think. How about the Declaration of Independence? Have you ever thought about the language? In that declaration, it says this, the pursuit of happiness how many of us have found happiness and stayed in that camp? You're always pursuing it. I mean, you, you buy something you really want and it feels good and you're all over it and you study it and you get into it and you show everybody what you got and all that. And it's fun. It is. It's fun. And you can be happy for a while. I can be happy with mashed potatoes and gravy. Very happy. And then afterwards, I'm quite sad that I ate so much. Right? Happiness is fleeting. You're always pursuing it. You want it, but, you know, you can't keep it. This is what pursuing righteousness is like. You know what you want. You know what you crave. You have good intentions, the world might, but yet you're always pursuing it. You never can get there. And again, why? Because righteousness is as right as God. And we all fall short. There's no way. And that's what Paul is saying. It's such a stumbling stone. Look at 1 Peter. Peter is 
looking at it from another point of view, or as he would see it through the Jewish-Christian lens that he had as well. For in Scripture, which would be the Old Testament, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, not it, in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Jesus Christ is the key to the entire Bible, old and new. Salvation is the same, old and new. You're saved by faith and faith alone, old and new. There is no difference, and Jesus links the two together and is applying in all the world today. But people still stumble over Christ all the time. The, major, the minority we would call a remnant. There's always a remnant in Israel, a remnant amongst those who would identify as Christians but don't have faith. They just identify with the culture, with the, with the ethics and that kind of thing. But they don't have the faith belief in Jesus yet. And amongst that wider group, there is a remnant who is saved by faith in Christ. And I hope that's all of us this morning. Faith is key. Romans 4 already said, If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? What does the Old Testament say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was right with God by God's grace through faith, the mechanism of faith. That's the key to all the scriptures. And so the Old Testament in many places foretold the problem that would arise when Christ came and people stumble over grace. They stumble over obtaining righteousness, not by works but by faith, an act of God on our behalf. God declares us righteous. We don't declare ourselves righteous. Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the central piece that holds it all together. Isaiah, he'll be a sanctuary. Both, for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Because it's grace. Isaiah 28, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Just as the application comes through all this so far, you know, I was thinking that biblical faith is so critically important. Where we get our ethics, God tells us what those are. We shouldn't need to invent them or wait for society to come along. We will sometimes be running against the current, often. We may find ourselves on the fringe. We may find ourselves in a minority position. In fact, Christians have been minorities all the time. We're just not used to it, perhaps, in our country. But it's always been the case. Jesus is the means, Old and New Testament. No two ways, just one way, to be righteous, and that is the gift of God to us, providing for us Jesus. His death on the cross, his resurrection, all of that's there. I want to show you a teddy bear picture now. 
just for those that rely on opinions and social values that change, they can be totally sincere, right? If you sincerely believe deep in your heart that these bears love each other, you're mistaken, even if you're sincere. Why? They're not alive, right? Simple, simple, simple. But it makes the point. Sincerity is a wonderful thing, but it needs to be rooted in reality. There's a lot of sincere people and a lot of religious beliefs all around the world. I appreciate their sincerity. We'll look at that in a bit. But it needs to be right. It needs to be real. It needs to be true. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, you've already obtained righteousness. Not your achievement, though. Humbly received through faith. You are all right with God. Does that feel good? You may not be right with the person you're sitting with, you may be not right when you look at yourself in the mirror, but when you meet God face to face someday, you know what God's going to say? You're not only all right, you're perfectly right. You're righteous. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. This is good. Thank you, God, for making us righteous. That is a wonderful gift to God. Romans 5.20 says, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Thank you, God, for grace. So in our sharing Jesus, we need to realize that we need to help people understand that if you want to be right with God, it's not something you have to achieve. It's not something about your value, your worth, the clothes you wear, the etiquette that you show, the giving that you do, the attendance that you have, the membership that you have, whatever it might be. It has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with faith, trust, belief. And that comes as a gift from God. Great good news. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16 tells us we need to have peace in our heart too about this. The world will take us in two different ways. For we are God, to God the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death. Some people are going to hear the message of saving faith and the grace of God, and that you're right with God and have obtained that righteousness through faith and faith alone, and they'll say, that stinks. I don't like it. It offends me. The Bible says that's going to happen. The other side is this. To the other, the fragrance of life. There are some out there just waiting to hear the good news, and when they hear it, life. It just connects. God is doing a miracle right there. We've got to keep that in mind so we have the courage and the fortitude to stand up for Jesus in a world that finds Christ a stumbling stone and offense. But they need him, and it's never too late. Secondly, zeal for God without faith falls flat. I tried to find F's in there, can you tell? Struggling to make it all sound like a memorable piece. Zeal for God without faith falls flat. It just does. It can't get to the distance. The first four verses in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. They're not saved yet. The majority still are stumbling over Jesus, and he's praying for their salvation. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God. They're passionate. They're on fire for God. They, they want to be righteous. They want to honor and worship God. There's this zeal there in that group. He admires that. He affirms it. But then he says, having been very zealous himself before he met Jesus, 
but their zeal is not based on knowledge. For I can testify that they are zealous, but not based on knowledge. That's a key piece here. Since they did not know the, that righteousness, they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God. We could just stop right there, right? Because that's the key piece. Righteousness comes from God. But he goes on to say, and they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I like to think that Paul gave the people of Israel his zeal of approval. You like that? You can all groan later on. Um, I know I did too when I thought of it. But it's right, right? He gives them their zeal of approval. These guys are on fire. He likes it. He's a zealous guy himself. He was on fire for God. Go, God, go. And these Christians, this stumbling stone, this Jesus business, he was arresting Christians. He was persecuting Christians. He held people's coats while they stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church, a deacon of the church, a godly man. He was there. He saw it all. He was an antichrist until he met Jesus, and it transformed him. He really appreciates zeal, which he never lost. But what he sees even more is, if you don't understand the message of Scripture, that you're saved by faith and not by works, you've got knowledge. You have the Old Testament, but you haven't understood it. And he sees this gap, and it tears his heart out. And he's praying for them, and he's sharing Christ with them. They have the scriptures. They just don't pay attention. Israel had everything but knowledge of what it meant. They had knowledge, but not what it meant. You could say the old saying that I've used before, they've educated themselves beyond their own ignorance. They could quote scripture, probably better than anybody here, but they didn't understand what they were reading. In fact, it, by the time Paul was ministering and preaching and teaching, they had come, many had come to believe that if you just simply had the law and studied it and listened intently to it, that was enough. Having been chosen by God, having the law, really applying yourself to studying it, you didn't need to do it. They'd kind of given up on the doing it, and they just figured... We're immune, immune from sin and the consequences. They did an end run, you could say, but it was a failure. John 5, 39 to 40, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Something about just having the law and studying it would put them in the right camp with God. These are the scriptures, he says to them, that testify about me, he says. Yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. I want to show you a little video clip of a Jewish man in Israel who came to life. It's just a short little clip. Let's watch. Could it be that it speaks about Yeshua in my Bible, in my Tanakh? Yes. So I don't know if you know, but in Jerusalem we have this, it's called the Dome of the Scroll, it's the Dead Sea Scroll. Yes. 
It's the, the oldest manuscript that we have of the Hebrew Bible. And I went and I searched in there all day long. I found Isaiah chapter 53. Of course, it's not divided into chapters there or verses. You have to kind of look at all the texts. I finally found it. And I'm reading in the Hebrew, and it's the same word for word as you have in the English translation. And I was just overwhelmed. I said, how can it be? Yeshua is part of our Hebrew culture. Yeshua is talked about in the prophets. Yes. And I discovered that it wasn't only in Isaiah. It was also in Jeremiah and all through the Hebrew Bible. And then it happened to me. One day I was sitting on this sand dune. I was fixing my fishing net and all of a sudden it just came to me that he is the Messiah yeah. and it changed my life. There you go. Great testimony, huh? He had knowledge. He had the Bible. He even knew from the Hebrew what he was looking for and he finally found Isaiah 53, which by the way, if you ever interact with a, somebody who's really an Old Testament scholar and you say, picture Jesus and read Isaiah 53 great match all the way through it and that's what he's that's what he's run across he didn't read just what Moses wrote in the first five books of the Bible he didn't just read what Isaiah wrote he read and finally understood it was about whom they wrote that mattered and he came to life in Christ that was a gift from God this is what we're talking about in the scriptures and so there's an important lesson here passion is a wonderful thing zeal for God is unmistakably great and I want to have that passion every day. I want to have that zeal for God in my life. I bet we all do. Not constantly there, I assume, because we are sinners and we have our ups and downs and feelings can be fleeting. And sometimes we don't understand God very well and we get confused about what's happening in our lives or in God's economy, what God is doing. But we know that in the Word we find our anchor. And in the Word we find hope. And zeal is important. We should have zeal for the Lord, but zeal cannot save anybody. Passionate people. I've, I've read of Buddhists pouring gasoline over their bodies and lighting themselves on fire and dying in passionate zeal for whatever cause they were pursuing. Others have lost their lives in many other pursuits. Passionate zeal. It's great. It's good. It's not a bad thing directed in the right ways. But without Christ... It falls flat. It doesn't end up where people hope it will. So there's two kinds of righteousness, pursuits, and obtaining it that Paul mentions. And I'm asking us this morning, which one describes you? First of all, there's the personal pursuit of righteousness with passion, maybe, sincerity, good works, sacrifice, all kinds of things you could add into that list. You're pouring yourself out for Jesus, but you're pursuing righteousness. You are uh, still concerned that you are not right with God, and so you're trying to make it up. You're trying to close that gap. You're trying to fill your life with stuff, and it's an endless pursuit. You'll never arrive. You'll never feel peace. You can be a church member or even a church leader with great zeal for God and zeal for his word and without faith in Jesus be lost. Knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus is the knowledge we have. The Jews had the knowledge of the Old Testament, but they didn't understand what it said. You're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
They didn't understand what they had. And sometimes that can happen even in the Christian community. Then there's God's righteousness. God's righteousness can be obtained by faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is like a mechanism, a, a conduit that God uses to show us and reveal to us that we are saved by his grace. His sovereign choosing, calling, election, last Sunday sermon. This is the evidence that God has done just that. And when we have that trust in Jesus Christ, we know that God has declared us to be righteous. And that is a miraculous event, especially if we think back to that moment when that happened. Earlier in Romans 3, Paul wrote, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We owe our entire righteousness, our entire standing, our entire holiness, our future glorification, all those words in Scripture, we owe it all to God. Why do we then do anything good if it's already been obtained? Hey, I'm already right with God. March on. I got a credit card with no limit. March on. I can sin like crazy because grace increases all the more. And can you hear a great Scott Noah emerging out of all that? I hope so. Well, and I hope that one's burned in good and deep. This is not how we want to abuse or take advantage of God's declared righteousness and grace. You know why we do what we do? Because of love. The world doesn't understand that either. They get the loving works that we do in response to God's declaring us righteous as works for righteousness. We need to help them understand that we're already right with God, and now out of love for God, we do these good things in response. That's an entirely different experience. But they can misinterpret why we do what we do, and we need to help the world understand we're saved by God. That is something we can do. Now, when it says that Christ is the end of the law, it doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments are now moot, that they're no longer relevant. The New Testament repeats them, therefore we can, with some real certainty, know that these are ethics that are continuing. Like I said, murder is still murder. If you hate somebody in your heart, Jesus said that's tantamount to murder. If you lust after somebody, that's tantamount to adultery. It goes really deeper than just the superficial thought of the Ten Commandments on the wall or something. It goes to the heart. Jesus, it says, is the end of the law. You know what that really means? Jesus is the goal or aim or the end point that the law pointed to. He's why the law exists. And the law reveals our sin, and the law reveals our need for forgiveness, and the only way to be right with God is by God's grace. To obtain righteousness is through faith. We can't pursue it. How many of us this morning, if we're honest, would say to themselves, you know what, I've, this is kind of weird, you might be thinking, because maybe deep down in your heart, you've just never had that settled peace, that firm foundation, 
and God's grace still just kind of stumbled along. It's like, yeah, I, I hear it, I understand it, but I, I'm not sure that I've received it and then I believe it. Well, then, if you don't believe it, you're counting on your own merit and goodness and works, and you're pursuing it. It's not that you don't want it, but you're still on the pursuit. The way to arrive, to obtain it, is so much easier and so much lovelier than working, and that is a gift. And if the Holy Spirit teaches us anything, it's inspiration time here. I pray that the Holy Spirit will cement that in for anybody that's curious about that and wondering. And you can have peace with God now and forever by faith in Jesus Christ. I just want to bow our heads before we take communion. If there's anything you want to share with God, do that. We'll have a little quiet time here. Your time with God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a patient God. You're patient. Your timing is always perfect. You cannot be rushed. You can't be manipulated. And you can't be held off. Lord God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit's movement in our own lives. Maybe we're already at peace and we've got that righteousness from you. We've obtained it and we know it. And you've confirmed it in your Holy Spirit in us. And we are so thankful. Thankful that the love can be expressed in return from us to you and to the world around us. We're, we pray, Lord, too, for folks that may be thinking, mm, not there yet. That's okay. If you want to be there, just pray for that thirst. That thirst for righteousness. And ask God for it. And talk to God about any issues you may have and wait on him. He's patient. He's patient. Lord God, thank you so much that we come to your table today in the confession and the confidence that you have saved us by the cross of Christ, that all of our sins have been removed, that Christ took those upon himself, took them to the grave and left them there, dead and buried where they belong. And that God, when Christ rose from the grave, we are shown not only that the cross effectively freed us, but also, Lord God, that we have eternal life in that freedom. To be right with you, Lord God, is a great treasure and a tremendous gift that you paid for. And so, God, we come in humility and gratitude and with love in our hearts to your table today to eat with you and each other. In the grace of Christ, we pray. Amen. On the night that uh, Christ was betrayed and handed over to the authorities, he only had about maybe 12 hours or so left to live. In that upper room, eating a meal together, Jesus, after giving thanks to the Father, took bread and he broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. 
as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Isn't it interesting? We don't have to break this ourselves. Jesus broke for us. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is a new covenant, a new one, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. There are seven covenants in the Bible. Six of them in the Old Testament, one in the New. None of the six covenants in the Old Testament assured you of your salvation. None. This one does. And the entire Old Testament and all the work of salvation history, God's work, leads to the New Covenant. And here it is, expressed to us in Scripture and at the table. And as you come forward, as you wish, two lines down the middle here, you can take the bread and then take the cup, eat the bread, take the drink. You're saying in a physical, tangible way that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and that you're at one with God and you, are, you have obtained righteousness. Isn't that great? You have peace with God. So as you're ready, uh, don't rush, but as you're ready, come down and receive communion. And if you'd like to have some... Uh, as gluten-free as we can get it, bread, it's right here in the middle if you choose, right? So as you're ready, come forward. If you're not able to come up, just please wave your hand, and I'll bring communion to you. Come. Oh 
Let's all stand. brought to you. I didn't see any hands go up. I want to make sure we don't miss anybody. Very good. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the wonderful fellowship of the Holy Spirit warm and move all of our hearts in that great loving realm that God provides for us himself. May we love one another, the world around us, and may we love the Lord above all things. And all of God's people could say forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and a Labor Day, hopefully day off tomorrow for many of you. God bless you.